accident or injury, call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a loved one is injured in any kind of accident, please don't wait. Call Jacob immediately for a free consultation. That's right, free. When an accident happens, it can turn your world upside down. So put the best on your side. Jacob doesn't even get paid unless you win. First name, first thought, first call. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. After an accident, 24 hours a day, call 844-24-JACOB or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. And here we go. Joining me on the Culture Pop Podcast is uh, a guy that I've worked with for 26 years, something like that. Uh, John Ireland. John, what are you doing, man? How has this never happened? And I, am I right in saying this has never happened, right? I have never appeared on one of your many podcasts. You have never appeared on one of my podcasts. So this is this is a legendary first that everybody's waiting for. <laughs> yeah, I think I used to pop in when you used to record some of them at the station, but I don't think I've ever been the featured guest. Uh, certainly not on Culture Pop. No, you know what? Some of the, some of the biggest ones we've had, uh, O'Shea was huge. Uh, Ramona was a really big deal. Ramona cried during her podcast. So you got a lot to live up to. Yeah, I'm hoping I can live up to that and maybe join her in the ranks of people who have cried. Is there anyone else on the list? That, is it just Ramona who has, Ram- has cried? Ramona is the, the only Ramona's the only one that lost it during one of the podcasts. I know Schiff, my buddy Richard Schiff, who you had on, did not cry. No, uh, he did not. He, uh, he doesn't even cry when he misses short putt, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. which, which causes me to cry regularly. Yes, yes. So um, I kind of want to start with because I don't know I don't know this about you. Did you grow up? Uh, we always joke about it. Did you grow up with money? No. Uh, well, it depends. I, I guess relatively. My dad worked as a he sold. He was what, what's called a manufacturer's rep. So he would sell electronic components to companies that that needed them for example if you needed a if you had a high-end fancy machine and you needed something that could test it that you could run tests through to figure out if it was working properly my dad would sell that he worked for um companies you've probably heard of but most people haven't that that sold audio tape he got in right in the beginning of kind of that revolution he worked for a company called Sertron that used to make tech uh, tape recorders and and stuff like that and so it's a little boring but he basically got in on the, the manufacturer's rep game right when the computer age started so when I was a little kid when I was probably I was born in 63 so probably uh, zero to 15 my dad didn't have a ton of money but around the time I got into high school is when the computers came along and started taking over and my dad sold a lot of computer test equipment so we started to get money right about the time i went into high school and that's um when we changed houses in corona del mar we lived in a small house until my freshman year in high school and then we moved to a big house my freshman year probably 77 right around then did your mom uh myrna ever work not like she didn't work in an office, but she did something that was interesting as a hobby. She started making wedding cakes, huh. probably when I was in junior high. And she got so good at it that she was probably making 
oh, I don't know, 50 or 60 a year. Wow. She, her, originally, she, her thing was, I only want to have one each weekend. And that way I don't, you know, I'm not overdoing it. But literally spend the, the week making the cake. And then my dad and her would put it in the back of her station wagon and deliver it to the wedding on Saturday. And then she would just do it again next week. And then she figured, well, maybe I could do two in a week. And I think the most she ever did was three in a week. But it may she did it as a hobby because she liked it and she thought it was fun. And she and she ended up doing it for 20 years. And I will still meet people like at Laker games. People come up to me and say, your mom did my wedding cake. Um, you know, which is probably um, a pretty small club. You know, you figure if she did, she started out doing maybe 20 a year and then did 50 a year. There, um, there, there probably aren't more than a couple thousand Myrna Ireland wedding cakes, but every once in a while I meet those people. Does she still bake? Not cake. Cakes, not wedding cakes. The last cake she did for when I got married for Lisa's shower, wedding shower, she baked individual small kind of fun cakes for everybody who was at the shower hour. And she said, that's it. I'm done. And so she she quit right around ninety nine, two thousand. I got married in ninety nine, but probably from seventy seven to ninety seven, she was doing at least a cake a week every week. So for me, the very first sports memory that sticks out for me was the 72 Munich Olympics, um, because I remember as a little kid, I would have been seven years old watching the Olympics and the Israeli athletes being taken hostage. That's actually the first sports memory that I ever had when I finally clued in and figured out what it was all about. What was your very first sports memory? It's a good question. I've, I, I, I've never thought about it. I remember that. I remember Munich, um, you know, sitting around watching those Olympics. Um, but I also remember watching the Lakers when they were winning 33 games in a row, which started in, so it would have been just before that. It started in, in November of 71 and carried into the start of 72. So that's the first time I, you know, can remember like going home from school, getting excited. Lakers were on. They had this huge win streak going. They had Will Chamberlain and Jerry West and Gail Goodrich. And so you would go watch the Lakers back then on Channel 9 and Chick Hearn doing the game. So how old, were, then, you? How old were you at that point? I was nine. I, I was either eight or nine. I was born in 63 and that was 71, 72. So probably eight. So I think that would be it. The first, like, the first memory I have, period, was my fourth birthday party. I remember we did, uh, and my birthday party, you'll appreciate this because you're a baseball fan. My birthday is on July 15th, and I was a big sports fan, so my parents would normally throw me a party surrounding the baseball all-star game, which was normally on a Tuesday night. So even if my birthday didn't fall on the actual night of the All-Star game, we would celebrate it on the night of the All-Star game when I was little because that was always the week that they would play the baseball All-Star game. So we'd have a bunch of people over to my house and we would do stuff and watch the All-Star game. But the my earliest memories that I have as a human is I remember my fourth birthday party. And then the earliest sports memory I have is probably when I was eight. Yeah. Um, how hard was it for you to find Lisa, your wife? Uh, I think, 
I never thought that I was going to be somebody that got married in my 20s. As it turns out, I wasn't. I didn't get married until I was 35. But uh, I, because I bounced around a lot, I never, like, for example, when I was living in Beaumont, Texas, and I was living in Monroe, Louisiana, and, and even when I was living in San Diego, and that's where I met Lisa, I was never looking to get married and had no interest in in getting married. And the main reason for that was I didn't want to put anybody through. Um, you, you did a little of this. I've done a little more of it than you. But when you choose broadcasting as a business, you never know when you're going to get that call where you have to pick up and move at a moment's notice. So you can't really put roots in a community. Like, for example, I never bought a house until I mm. got to Los Angeles. So my mentality was, I look, I never was thinking about getting married. And when I met her and started dating her, I fell in love with her. And then I had to start thinking about it. So she's the first person I've, I ever thought about marrying. I didn't want to get married before I met her. And even when I met her, we were in San Diego and she jokes about it now that I kept telling her, look, if, if getting married is, we have a, a neighbor of ours that we make a running joke out of the fact that it was in her head. It was one of her goals to get married before she was 30. And she got married a week before her 30th birthday. It just kind of worked out. Right. And now she's married to a great guy. She's got four kids. She, But that was in her head very important. I was never that guy. I, I wanted to, to uh, kind of get my career entrenched and then worry about getting married. And Lisa ruined all that because when I met her, I thought, okay, I can marry her. She's, she's fantastic. And, uh, and then, so when I got the job in LA and she saw me move from San Diego to LA and, and, you know, she was the one that she said, great, I, you know, I'd love to move to LA. Now you might remember this when you and I were working together um, and we had just started working together. I got a job offer in Detroit. I do. And uh, I was pretty sure I was going to take it because it was so much money. Yeah, they have to pay you to move to Detroit. You, you'll appreciate this because you're from that part of the country. <laughs> um, they have to pay you more to be a sportscaster in Detroit than they do to be a sportscaster in San Diego because they pay you in sunshine. And literally went. So I thought then that was going to be the end of me and Lisa. We had, we'd only dated for a year. Um, she said, well, I'll think about coming to Detroit, but it's it's obviously not the first thing on my list. And when um, I, I, I don't know how much of many of the specifics, if you remember, they had just started talking to us about taking over the morning show and they had jerked you around. I, you know, we've talked about this on the air a little bit, probably never have told the whole story. You were brought out there to do mornings, the, the old Mason in the morning show. Yep. And then they, they jerked you around and tried to get you to quit. And, and you, when you and I met, you were writing a screenplay and playing out the string and you were wisely not going to walk away from the money they contractually owed you. And then you, you and I kind of hit it off. Um, you thought, you know, um, I can do what I do with Ireland. And they fell back in love with you and said, well, what if we, you know, what if we let you pick your co-host and what if we let you, you know, do something, you kind of, the timing of it was you kind of made up with them at the exact time I came along. Well, have you I ever would, wondered why they wouldn't let me out of my contract? No, I don't know if you've ever told me. I, you know, I just thought I was, uh, it was fortuitous timing on my part because for whatever reason, 
when you and I, when I happen to be doing shows with you is when you, I don't know if you won them back, back over or if something happened. I don't, did, I, I don't even know if I've ever asked you, why did they, why were they so down on you and then turned back up on you in the summer of 94? So what happened was in Toledo, I was at a station called WRQN. And WRQN was doing, I was doing in morning drive like a 30 share. And I was, I was, I was absolutely crushing one of their stations called WMHE. So they hired me actually less because they liked me and more because they wanted me out of town. So their station in (laughs) Toledo would do better. And the reason they never let me out of my contract is because they didn't want me to go back to Toledo and start beating the shit out of their station again. Right, right. <laughs> so, the, yeah. and and it was really that screw it attitude that like, hey, they won't let me out. Screw you guys. I'm going to say whatever, do whatever. It was that attitude that came through in that night show. And ultimately, that became sort of the persona of the Mason and Ireland show was that the, it was the, I don't give a damn. I'll just say whatever I want and shoot my mouth off thing. Um, and I thought I was going to get fired. Instead, they started loving what I was doing and came <laughs> back around and put us in mornings. Yeah, I was the beneficiary of that because um, we were we were having fun. I considered myself kind of a TV guy who loved doing radio, but I really liked you. And I remember I had one meeting where, you know, I was brought in there on the pretense of uh, the two guys running that place were uh, Mike Glickenhaus was the GM and Howard Friedman was the program director and I had a meeting with them and they said look uh, we're putting you in there with this guy because he's mailing it in and uh, we really don't don't know, know what he's going to say or what he's going to do but you you know a lot about sports you seem to get along with everybody we think if we put you in there maybe you guys can have some fun and it's I was almost put in there as a safety valve from you basically telling everyone to f off and uh, and when I get in there, I worked three days with you and I walked back into them and I went, you went, you guys are idiots. This guy is fantastic. I, I don't know what is going on between you, but uh, this uh, this guy's better than anybody you have on the air. And they had good they had good, they had good people in there at that point. They had like Rome and Hartman and Chet and Chet Forty and Hacksaw was doing it. And I, I go, this guy doesn't take himself seriously. He's smarter than hell and hell. And, and they said to me, he goes, well, he hasn't been that way necessarily with others. And uh, and what I what I think was part of it was when you you were working with doing that show with Rick Schwartz. Yep. Rick, Rick fought you for the con. He fought you for the steering wheel. Yes. And 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 I think and Rick's a good guy and you and I both like. him. Yeah. But Rick at that Rick at that point really wanted to establish his own brand. And, and it was understandable. He was just getting started. I, I think he was, this was one of the first big jobs he had in a market. And um, I, so I think that when, when you guys were working together, he, Rick, like every time you made a point, Rick felt like he had to top you. And it was less of a conversation than it was um, kind of a fight for the mic. Yep. And you guys were able to, to, you know, to, to your credit, you guys were able to make that entertaining. But I think when I came along, I, I was more interested in what you had to say. And I, I think that the reason the reason that you and I got along from the beginning was, um, it, it, you know, they always say it's it's important who you follow. Um, 
I followed Rick, who really fought you for the mic, and I was kind of the kind of the opposite. Like every time you made a point, I would say, "Well, that's interesting. Why do you think that?" And uh, and and then you would expand on it rather than no 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 you th- th- you're wrong. Here's why, you know. And uh, and I think that was the beginning of Mason and Ireland. That it was like, okay, these guys disagree on some stuff, but they genuinely like each other. Yep. And there's there's no tug of war for the con. Um, and one thing you said to me in the beginning that I, I think has served us well, and particularly me well, is you said, um, you've kind of taught me radio from from doing it, for, especially doing a two-man show. And you said, the way you saw radio was there were generators and there were reactors. And you really loved being a generator, but you weren't necessarily a great reactor. Yep. And, and by I think you're wrong about that. You're a really good reactor. You just didn't know it. Um, I just think you needed the right person to react to. But what you're great at is being a, being a generator. And so anytime I felt myself like try, trying to, to grab the wheel, I said, okay, I would say to myself, let Steve generate, okay? And then whatever you generate, which you're great at, then we would take it down the road together. And I think that's what that's what's kind of happened yeah. over the how, – the 20 plus years we've been together so you and your dad were really close uh and he passed away i think people know our dads passed away very very close to each other i think within yeah. two months oh, of we, each other oh, we, yeah um you were very close with your dad and your dad had multiple battles with cancer right yeah had well first got uh got prostate cancer and then got colon cancer and was able to live, basically control those two for 20 plus years. The one regret he had, and he, you know, I get tested, Mace, you know, all the time for prostate. I I go in every year or or every other year to get a a prostate exam. Is that just for uh, fun? Yeah, I wish. Uh, Just because he got diagnosed when he was in his 50s. But the one thing he told me never to do was back then when he was diagnosed with it, they had uh, they treated it with radiation, and if you picture your prostate, uh, it has a lining around the uh, inside of it. And what the the radiation does, if you get cancer, is it melts away the cancer, but it also melts away that lining. Hmm. And so basically, you have plumbing problems for the rest of your life because you have blockages. And so my dad, because he had radiation in like the eighties, um, he had to go in and have several surgeries to to clear out his plumbing so so he basically you know was was getting operations once every two or three years so the moral of that story is uh make sure you have a you have a good prostate cancer doctor because now they treat it in a million different ways but very rarely do they they go in with the the chemo and radiation to the degree they did with him because uh because it buys you a whole bunch of problems later but he was able to um kind of manage that um, for a good 20 or 30 years until then, when he got into his 80s, it spread. And he died a week short of his 84th birthday. Mm-hmm. Now, your dad was younger than my dad when he died, right? Yeah, my dad uh, died of a fall. He was only 74 years old. Um, and my dad uh, was a handful, as as I think I've talked about on the air. Um, he uh, had quit drinking. He'd quit smoking, um, but he was uh, untreated bipolar. And so my dad would get into these manic highs, and he was on a manic high when he died. So imagine, 
You know, his mind is racing, he's racing, and he loved gambling. He loved going to the casinos. Um, and, <laughs> and my dad um, was in a casino one day and ran to the ATM. He was running up credit cards. He was That's one of the byproducts of, of, uh, of mania is you just start spending money. He was running to one of the ATMs, and he fell, and he hit his chin right on the edge of the ATM. And it snapped uh, two of the vertebrae in his spine. So he was immediately uh, paralyzed uh, from the neck down. Um, and then we had a really tough, a series of tough decisions because heart surgery and, and surgery to stabilize his neck. And in the end, there was really no choice but to, uh, to let him go. But yeah, he went in a really... It was a really rough way. You you remember uh, how broken up I was. Your your dad had more of a, a slow fade where you got to say the stuff that you wanted to say, I think. Uh, my dad just went all yeah. of a sudden. It was just like, bam, he was gone. Yeah, and, you know, the the uh, the hard thing about making the decisions that you and your brothers and your mom had to make is um, – you don't know how happy he would have been to have to, had to have lived with the paralysis anyway. You and I talked a lot about that, that, uh, that, that when, they, when they get to the end, quality of life becomes a really big deal. Uh, my dad had, um, you know, because of my access, basically just because I'm a Laker announcer, I, um, I had a relationship with Patrick Soonchong, who is trying experimental cancer treatments. For people who don't know, he's the richest guy in L.A. He's a doctor. He owns 5% of the Lakers. Yep. Um, he's the Bought Magic Johnson Johnson share when Magic had to. He owns the LA Times now too. Yeah, and uh, and he's he's actually doing a lot of stuff right now with COVID nineteen. But uh, so he offered to put my dad into a series of what appeared to be pretty successful cancer trials, and my dad went through three or four meetings, and and uh, the doctors could not have been nicer, and and uh, Patrick couldn't have been nicer, and. In the end, my dad decided that he he didn't want to continue to go go into these trials because his quality of life was what mattered. He he was going to be hooked up to a lot of machines. It would have been two or three days of uh, a week of of you know five or six hours being hooked into you know getting blood transfusions and stuff like that. And and so when you get to be that age, you know all my dad really wanted to do was. Um, you know, kind of live his life. So, so there, those decisions come into it too, is, is, you know, do, do you want to keep your, and in my dad's case, he got to make it for himself. In your case, you had to make it for your dad, but do you want to just stay alive for the sake of staying alive if, if it's going to be hard? And I don't, I don't fault anybody who decides, nah, I'm just going to let life run its course and see, you know, see how long I'll, I can stick around. Yeah. And for my dad, that turned over a year so that that was good so what you made a uh, a final trip with your dad to ireland uh where he was born um and what what was that trip like so that it wasn't he we took it in 2009 i offered to go back with him in 2015 and he didn't want to go back he knew in 2009 that it might be the last time he went. Now, I've, I've gone back since. My mom wanted to spread his ashes in his church. My dad grew up in a very small town in Ireland. In Everything in Ireland is based on what county you grew up in. My dad was in Northern Ireland outside of Belfast in County Down. And um, he, Mace, the town he grew up in is tiny, man. It's like everybody knows everybody. Mm. Now there's a lot of resorts there. You'll appreciate this. 
it's probably most famous now because it's where they film a lot of a lot of Game of Thrones, or where they filmed a lot of Game of Thrones. So one of the big issues of tourism there now is you can take the Game of Thrones tour, <laughs> where you can you can go back and look, and, and you know the hotel where my dad and I stayed, and where you know I stayed when I went back, um, is the hotel you stay in if you're going to take the Game of Thrones oh, tour. Wow. But um, but it, it's weird that the, I I. I think you you came to my dad's service when I did his eulogy the the thing I said the most amazing gift my dad ever gave to me was I don't have an Irish accent you know so here's this guy who gave me everything and you you've met my dad you heard him talk I mean the first thing you notice about him about him is he's got this pretty heavy Irish brogue but where I you know back then growing up and learning how to talk in the 60s and 70s you, you I know I think your dad worked for Kodak yep. my dad was always from early in the morning until late at night. So all my mom basically and all my all my teachers taught me how to talk. Had I been hanging around with my dad a lot, I wouldn't have I, I would have had an accent for sure. And I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I mean there are no in the history of the NBA, there are no play by play announcers and I don't think there are any sports talk show hosts who have ever had an Irish brogue. <laughs> but uh somehow I lucked out. So at some point you find yourself uh, sitting in a doctor's office with Lisa and the doctor uh, tells you that uh, that she's got breast cancer. What are what are those moments like after that? Well, in her case, the you know, she had had thyroid cancer when she was younger and she felt a lump and she thought this doesn't feel you know, she had already gone through thyroid cancer and she said this doesn't feel right. So she actually went to get it checked on a day that you and I were on the air. And uh, the matter of fact, I think that's the first time, you know, I cry a lot at movies. I cry a lot. I think when I told you and Singer was the first time I ever cried in front of you. Mm. Um, I don't even know if you remember that, but I, I, I got through the show. And at the end of it, I had found out right before the show, at the end of it, I told you guys, and you two were the first people I had told since Lisa told me. And uh, so she goes into and finds out about it. And because she had gone through thyroid cancer, she decided to be uber aggressive about it. Uh, um you um, you can get a lumpectomy if you get diagnosed with breast cancer, which is they, they can just take out the lump. But if that happens, there's a 5% chance that it could come back. And she figured, even though with a 95% chance that it wouldn't, she figured, okay, I, if, if, if there's a 5% chance it can come back, I'm going to be in the 5%. So she decided not only to get a mastectomy, but she decided to get a double mastectomy because if you do that, you absolutely minimize the chance of it coming back. It's still a chance it could, but there's an, a, a, a small percentage of 1% that you could get it again. So uh, she was aggressive from the beginning and never had any doubts. Like she, we talked to people that could diagnose with it now because they know we've been through it. And I've talked a little bit about it on the air. So people will call me and say, hey, my wife just got diagnosed. Can I put her on the phone with your wife? And what she always tells people is, um, it's whatever you're comfortable with in terms of what your chances are. And Lisa wanted to absolutely minimize her chances. 
So um, she decided to get a double mastectomy and, um, and go through it that way. And she did it, Mace, all in one day. She had the double mastectomy and the reconstruct all done on the same day. Wow. She was in six hours of surgery. And I basically moved into the hospital. And uh, so I took a week off from our show. Um, she, she had to be there at 5 o'clock in the morning, was there with her for six hours, and then stayed with her in the hospital for three days. And, uh, and once, once she had really good surgeons. And so once I saw that she had come out of it and I had talked to the surgeon. I was at ease. So the only time I really felt nervous was while she, those six hours when she was in there and until I got to talk to them. But we're, we're lucky, as you know, um, and she, matter of fact, one of her best friends got diagnosed at the same time she did and didn't make it, was gone in 18 months. So we think her name is Lillian and we think about Lillian a lot hmm. that, you know, just by the luck of the draw, we were we were the ones who made it. And, and I'll tell you, you, you live with a renewed sense of, uh, of life after you make it through something like that, her more than me, but even me, because then you, you don't take things for granted. If you're thinking about taking a trip that you go, well, I'll get to it in two years. Uh, you kind of do that naturally. You have a good adventurous spirit. Yes. I, I'm more comfortable in, uh, you know, I joke all the time that I'd rather be in a five-star hotel in Beverly Hills than I would be to some of the places that you gallivant off to with uh, Juan. But um, but after that, I was more open to being more adventurous. When you make it through something like that as a couple, you tend to you, you tend to appreciate life more. I think that, that what we're all going through now, um, when we get to start doing stuff again, I think we're going to take less things for granted. Don't you? Yeah, I completely agree. I think, uh, you know, we, we talk about sports, but just the ability to sit in a restaurant and have a meal, the ability to go for a walk and not worry about getting close to somebody, the ability to go to the beach. I think we're all going to appreciate life a whole bunch more once we realize that it's back and what all that stuff is like when we don't have it. Because um, I, I think that's where we are right now. We're, we're going to come back with a great sense of... Uh, of gratitude, which I think will be one of the byproducts of, of what we're going through right now. Uh, now, I think what normally you are, like I said, you are of the two of us, the more adventurous one. Like you've often said, you can't wait till driverless cars get here. And you're like the first one in on a lot of new technologies. And you would consider putting a chip in your arm. And, and you know, I'm, I always joke that I'll wait till you do it, see if you survive it, and then I'll do it. But I, I'm actually thinking I, I and I'm curious what you how you're going to be. I'm going to be like one of the first people back in. Like if they lift the stay at home order on May 15th and say you can go back to restaurants. I think I'm going to a restaurant on May 16th. Are you? Uh, you, you know what? I I don't know. I think it's dicier for me. I, you know, I talk about Chris Cuomo all the time. And I do. I love Chris Cuomo as a uh, television performer. I don't he got really sick with COVID, right? He got really sick. And I look at that and I think, damn, what what he's got, I don't want to go through. It looks like it was just hell for uh, for a week. Um, And I, you know, and I know people now who have been through this. Um, Your your mom kind of went through a thing, didn't she? Yeah, well, it's going. She's going through it now. We haven't talked about this on the air, and she asked me not to because um, she didn't want, you know, a lot of people that listen to our show have her 
contact info. Yep. And they didn't want, he, she didn't want her phone ringing off the hook. She kind of wanted to go through it privately. And she may, she's never been tested, but I'm pretty sure she either, she either had COVID-19 or had a very bad case of the flu. And it's a terrible time for that to be the case because she's 81. Yeah. That's another thing wouldn't like me saying, but I can say it on your pod. Um, she's 81. And so I've been talking to her multiple times a day and you've been like, you've been really nice about it. Like you've been texting me every day, checking on her. A lot of my friends have, cause I've, I've shared it with, you know, people that are close to me. Um, I don't even think Lindsay and Funches know no. that my mom has been going through this, but um, she had, um, she couldn't eat her temperature. And this is when I got really scared. Her temperature was going up two, three days in a row, got up to about 102. Um, we got her temperature down. We got her eating something. And just yesterday is the first time she says she's felt like herself. Um, we have a woman who you and I work with. I won't say her name because I don't know if she wants it out there, but you'll know who I'm talking about, who, um, who we really like in our office that got diagnosed with COVID-19 right at the beginning. Yeah. And um, so my mom's been talking and they had incredibly similar symptoms. And my goal from the beginning, I think I told you, was to keep my mom out of the hospital. As long as I could keep her out of the hospital, I was fine. And it wasn't until you and I are taping this on a Saturday. It probably wasn't until Monday of this week that I felt I had cleared that hurdle. Um, and it's funny, I'd gone down there. I've been down there three or four times just to drop stuff off for her and have like, all I can do is wave to her from the window. No, I don't even know if you've done that. Have you physically seen your mom in, in the last three and a half weeks? No, I haven't. I talk to her first thing every morning. I give my uh, my mom a call, but I have not uh, seen my mom and don't and frankly, don't know when I'll be able to. Juan's parents are in the same boat. His mom is I think she is 70 something. Uh, and his stepdad is in his 70s also. I mean, I don't know when we're going to be able to see our parents and actually be in the vicinity of our parents. You know, I, I by the way, I was, I, I have checked in a lot on, uh, on Myrna because for me, the idea, now that my dad's gone, the idea of losing my mom is like the most terrifying thing I can think of. Um, well, it's really like this in this type and, and people are losing their parents in this type of thing, but to lose them without ever, uh, you know, getting to stay with them or help them through what they're going through is an, it would be just incredibly for us. At one point she said to me, she goes, gosh, I've been so careful. This is, this is like completely unfair if I've got it. And like I said, you know, her doctor said, we're not going to test you unless we're going to treat, change your care, but we're going to treat you as if you have it. And, um, and so, yeah, losing them in, in a in in the coronavirus would would be would be awful. And and you know, I don't know. Do you have any sense um, where we are in the in the in the time continuum here? I you know, it's like I I don't know if I'm going to see I'm going to be able to be in the same room as my mom in a month, in two months. I I just have no sense of it. Do you? You know. I think this is not going to change a lot for people who are seniors or are in high risk groups. I think it's going to take a while. I mean, I, it may be a couple of months before I'm in the same room as my mom and my not stepdad, Leo. Um, right. Well, 
you know, I'm, I'm happy for Donna, your mom, because she has Leo. Yes. My mom has been going on four and a half weeks completely by herself. And um, the good news is that her neighbors are all looking out for her. And so she has a what we call an outside the window visit several times a day, like several people check on her and they'll text her and say, hey, you know, um, I'm outside your window. Do you need anything? She's getting deliveries. Um, two of my best friends from high school have kind of that still live in Corona Del Mar have been, you know, helping out with like if, if she needs chicken noodles, noodle soup, like I'll call my buddy Mark and he'll take it down there. And, and so we've been able to manage it. But I'm, 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 I'm uh, happy for Donna that uh, she's got Leo with her and that, you know, they can kind of go through it together because it would be hard if you're that age to go through this by yourself. Yeah, I am. I am grateful every day that she's got uh, Leo. I mean, Leo changed, changed her life. Um, you know, my dad was um, not healthy for the last 20 years of his life and really was one with his easy chair. Uh, and Leo's got, he's an adventurous guy. Um, I, I mean, with all due respect to my, to my dad, who I loved, um, I think my mom's never had, has, I don't think she's ever been happier uh, than she is right now. Right. A lot of it's new for her. Yeah. You know, she wasn't from your dad and, uh, and you know, it was good. I, 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 I don't know if we ever talked about it or not, but um, on the air, and if we, if you don't want to go down this road, cut me off. But um, after your dad passed, I know your mom dated a guy and liked him a lot and it ended badly. And my worry when that happened was, oh gosh, she's, she's going to be hesitant now to kind of open her heart. And thank God she wasn't. Yes. Yeah. Then, you know, now, come, now comes Leo. Yeah. No, you know, which is, my mom was pretty, de you know, de she was pretty determined. I mean, the guy that she got with first was truly an asshole and just disappeared one day. Um, and But my mom went right back out there, put herself right back out there and landed with the exact right guy. Yeah, which is which is great. And, you know, Leo, Leo likes to give us a hard time, which is like the, the bar that people have to clear if you and I are going to like them. Yep. You know, if they can't take it, they're probably out. And, you know, Leo, Leo was giving us a hard time from the word go, which was great. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he rolls. You know, I've, I've, I've always said that's kind of the bar with both of us, that if you're going to be in our world, you you uh, you better uh, be able to uh, not only take a joke, but be the butt of the joke. Sometimes I think that's why Lindsay has has uh, adjusted so well yep. is that just started giving it to her the second she came along. And our attitude is always like. Well, if they're going to get offended by this stuff, then they're not going to make it anyway. And, uh, you know, uh, Amanda was great at that. Greg was great at that. And now Lindsay just hit the ground running because, you know, uh, with, with you and I, if, if you can't, I mean, if you can't laugh at some of the bad stuff that's going to happen at you, then you're not going to make it. Yep. It just, it, it, I have a sense of humor about this stuff. So you've got a son named Jack. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I've gotten to know Jack. Jack knows my birthday, uh, which I always appreciate. Yeah. Um, yeah, he could say uh, your birthday. And if you've ever told him your mom's birthday, he could probably tell you that. So when did you and Lisa first find out that Jack uh, was autistic? His, they, there's a thing if you have kids now, you and I started going to school when we were in kindergarten. There's now a thing called pre-K. Pre and he was in a pre-K class and his teacher came over to our house one day to see us. 
and they said, so he was three, maybe three going on four. They said, we're having trouble connecting with Jack. He seems to be in his own world a little bit uh, on certain things. And it, we we want you guys to be aware of it. And so then when that happens, as you take him to get tested, you they figure out whether or not he's on. Now they call it the spectrum on the autism spectrum. And it became pretty clear um, as he got a little older and we saw the kids that were exactly his same age, that he wasn't progressing, uh, at least mentally, as quickly as they were. And uh, and we knew and we look at that, Mace, as kind of a blessing because we were able to throw the kitchen sink at him when he was little to try and get him to be independent. Because if you're a parent of a special needs kid and ours is fairly high functioning, so we, we consider ourselves pretty lucky. But what you're you're in a race to see if you can mainstream him. Um, and we don't know yet. Jack is 18 now. We don't know if he'll ever be able to like live on his own or drive a car or stuff like that because autistic kids are normally two to two to three years behind other kids on the spectrum. So Jack's 18, but it's more like he's 15. So, but we're pretty hopeful. We think he's, he's been able to find ways to, you know, I think he can have a job. I think he'll be able to um, go to college. Uh, I think he loves cars. So I hope he'll be able to drive drive it might not be till he's older of course like i always laugh ben lyons didn't get his our buddy ben didn't get his uh driver's license till he was 25 right. New Yorker. He's a yeah you know kids nowadays they're 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 kids in jack's uh, high school class that don't have their license just because they take uber everywhere so he may not need it as much as as uh, uh, you and i would you know, remember how excited you were when you first got your driver's oh, license yeah. and it was this whole new world of world of freedom i used to really worry about that i don't as much anymore um, but we think he's got a real shot at at having um, a pretty normal, fulfilling life, which is what you want if you're a special needs parent. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Do you ever think he'll be able to live on his own? Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, it, he would tell you that uh, he would welcome Lisa and I going on a vacation for a week and leaving him him here. Uh, we have never done that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's he now does all the things. He's a uh, he's a rule follower. Yeah. So, you know, yes, he has to take certain medicine every day. We don't have to remind him that we had uh, an incident. I think I talked about this in the air. I can't remember where or uh, within the last year. I actually missed a couple of Laker games uh, because of this. He had a seizure, an epileptic seizure that we that came out of nowhere. And um and we had to take him to the hospital, have a bunch of tests run, and he's come out of it. He's never had a second one. But as a result of it, he has to take a certain amount of medication to minimize the chance that he'll ever have another one. And we never have to remind him to take it. We never have to remind him to check in. He, he has uh, monthly visits with a doctor that have now been switched over to, over to, to, uh, to Zoom visits. It's, and uh, he does those without Lisa, without me, and he checks in on his own. Um, so we, we, we've gotten to the point where we're pretty convinced he can live on his own. We would like to be nearby. You know, like um, you've been to my house. You know, I live, you know, I live in this kind of uh, gated community, uh, Pleasantville kind of life. Um, maybe to start things out, we move Jack to the other side of the village and, uh, and, and he has his own place and where we can keep an eye on him. But we're pretty, we're pretty confident that he'll be able to do that. 
Did you and Lisa ever consider having uh, another child after Jack? We did. Matter of fact, the plan in the beginning was to to have two or three. I wanted three, and Lisa was more leaning towards two. But uh, you'll study study you have an autistic kid the chances of you having a second one are much higher 50 percent so we wanted to to we didn't think it was fair to jack if um if we had another kid and um the other kid turned out to be uh, autistic as well and that we because because jack's kind of a full-time job job with us we wanted him we wanted to give him the best chance to have a normal life that we could and that required trade-offs for me and lisa and you know we're we're kind of a shuttle service running him all over the place and taking him to different things and things and and um and so we were scared that if we had a second one like that that it would take away from the um attention we paid to jack um but i i gotta tell you you and i are friends with dave singer um who produced our show for years and years dave um his first son, uh, Maxim, uh, was born with Down syndrome, and he was faced with the same decision. Do we want to have another kid? Uh, Dave and his wife, Patty, did, Nico, and Nico doesn't have any issues. Right. Um, you know, so that's going to be – I'm really happy for Dave and Patty because, you know, when they're gone late in life, Nico will be there to help Maxim if he has any issues. That's something we're going to have to develop with Jack is, you know, God forbid if Lisa and I – and I got hit by a bus. Um, how can Jack make it through life without us? And we're getting there. He's he's, he's developing friends and um, uncles and cousins and and other people that we think could uh, run with the ball if if something ever happened to us. But I'm uh, I'm I'm ha- I've told Dave before that I'm really happy and and a little bit jealous that uh, they have Nico because Nico's such a you know you know him he's yep. such a great kid. he is a great kid. And, and that they'll have uh, they'll have Nico there to uh, to look out for Maxim um, when Dave and Patty uh, you know aren't available. So that's uh, that 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 well, that that's the other side of, of not having a sibling is uh, is that uh, Dave and Patty have that advantage over us. Not that it's a competition, but the, there, there's another side of it that that I'm happy for them that they get that that too. So when do you f- officially feel like you became a grown up? What well, what was the moment? Uh, can, are, are you uh, you know me pretty well are you sure that's happened yet <laughs> there's i mean you've been through a lot of stuff at some point you said okay i'm, I'm grown up i am john ireland i know who i am what was that point uh, i uh it 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 definitely was after i got married i still didn't feel like a good lisa uh, you know uh, we joked that i'm six years older than her and uh the difference between you and Juan, you're on my side of that of that equation too, right? Juan's younger than you. Yeah, are. Juan's ten years younger than me. Okay, so you know you know the drill, and I think it's true in your relationship as well. Lisa jokes that she's noticeably younger, but noticeably more mature than I am. <laughs> Wouldn't you say that about the two so of you as 100% well? Hundred percent true. Yep. So you and I needed, uh, you know, somebody to kick us into mat- maturity. Um, but I, I'm okay with that. That I I do like doing things that are kind of dumb and stupid, and and uh, and there's a uh, I, I you know the ultimate the the guy that you and I both know that has never grown up, who's the ultimate Peter Pan, is Bill McDonald. Yep. And Billy just has never grown up. He's got he's he's raised three adult sons, and now two of the three sons are married. And Billy will tell you that that they're more mature than he is, and. Uh, 
And I love that about him. I, I, I think that grow, growing up is overrated. But um, if so, I don't duck your question. Um, I would say when Jack came along, I had an overwhelming sense of, okay, now somebody's paying attention to how I behave and I'm setting an example for someone else. And now I have to live up to it. I can't just eat ice cream for breakfast every day and not have a consequence to it. So um, when Jack came along is what would kick me into being a cronut. Now you see, you don't have kids. So what, what was it for you? Um, God, that's a weird question for me. Um, and you've always, You've always been taking care of your mom and dad since you were, you know, in high school and college. So you've always you you had to grow up faster than I did anyway. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. It was probably the first time I bought my mom and dad a house. That was probably right. it when I felt like I was a responsible person because that was always a goal of mine. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. So uh, when I was uh, when I was growing up, um, I knew I was gay all along. Uh, from the jump. And I always felt like I would be rejected by my mom and dad when they found out I was gay. So my goal was in my in my head was that if I could buy them a house before I actually came out, they couldn't possibly reject me because I had just bought them that wow. house. And and but by the way, you know you know now that that was flawed thinking. Completely right? flawed thinking. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm and now I meet kids who are like, I came out when I was eleven. I'm like, good for you, man. I came out with when I was twenty eight, and it was absolute torture. I felt like I had to buy my mom and dad a house so that they wouldn't reject me when I actually <laughs> told them I was gay. I mean, that's how that's how twisted it was in my head. Right. This is one of the great you, you uh, we're kind of we're kind of going down a tangent here, but this is one of the um, the great dilemmas. I really feel like I can tell you anything. Yeah. But th this is the one thing that Lisa convinced me um, that I could not pressure you about. And I'm glad she did because I think she was right. But I used to pray for, that you would come out earlier. I was just convinced that you it would be a soft, softer landing than you thought and and i i was uh, i mean i just knew the way people felt about you and i think that but as i learned from you and i've learned from others you really can't make that decision for a person you need to come out when you're ready i could have <clears throat> really leaned on you and i could have said look i like i in my own stupid head i played it out i go look i here's a list i'd even thought about who i was going to put on it Here's a list of 10 people. I think that, let's do a lab experiment. Mm -hmm. Let's tell these 10 people that you're gay, and I want you to watch how they react. And I think when you see how they react, you are going to get way, way more comfortable about what's, what's driving you crazy. And like you just said, it was like torturous for you when you should and how you should and everything else. But I don't think it would have worked looking back. I didn't, you know, I was, you know, I was thinking like people like, Mutual friends of ours, people like Kurt Sandoval and, you know, uh, you know, people like uh, the girls you were working with at Channel 11. Yep. And, you know, I think some of them probably knew already. But, um, you know, like public people that knew you that didn't know you were gay. 
I thought, okay, let's let's show let let's show Steve that these people would know. But I couldn't make that decision for you. And I think if I would have pushed you, you would have you would have you would have hated me for it. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody needs. This is why I hate outing so much when somebody gets outed. It's such a personal decision. But like through the '90s, when I was really starting my career, when I was in Toledo, and then when I came to uh, to Extra, I always felt like my life was a house of cards. Like the yeah. the moment that become it became public, it would all come tumbling down. Um, and I, I everybody's got their own clock like I didn't want to come out to my parents until I was with somebody because then they would feel better about it because I was actually with somebody and I wasn't in it by myself um, right. I mean there there are lots of little decisions here's here's something that I, I think about a lot so I was uh, accepted to Bowling Green um, and I was given a full academic scholarship which was incredible Um I was also accepted to Yale, as I've told many times, I was accepted to Yale Drama School. Um, And I wanted to go to Yale so badly because I really saw that I was going to become an actor. Um, And and the year was about 1983. I graduated from high school. Uh, The AIDS crisis started in 1982. The fact that I went to Bowling Green um, put me in a position where I had to consider, I had to continue to live a straight life. And so I never got with anybody the whole time as a Bowling Green. Had I gone to Yale, which was a very progressive university in the drama department, which was, Oh, sure. Which there were, def- yeah, I, I, never I could have wound up with AIDS and not even be here today. So sometimes, you know, I think it was a blessing that I wound up going to Bowling Green instead of to Yale, where I might've come out and become sexually active and contracted the virus. Yeah, I love I love sliding doors moments like that where you look back and think, boy, it was the worst thing that ever happened uh, that you didn't go to Yale. And now you look back and say, well, maybe not. Yep, exactly. You know? uh, so you tell me that you told me that you play golf uh, and you mentioned some of the famous people that you play golf with, yeah. which is very, very impressive on the podcast. Can you mention who they are? Sure. Yeah. No, I, you know, I um, it this all kind of started when I used to play golf for fun, just goofing around, but never really wanted to join a country club or a golf club because I didn't think I was one of those guys that was going to play for, you know, three, four times a week. But as you know, I don't sleep. And I, you know, I've told you this, I don't know how public I've been about it, but I, I don't sleep to the point of I was taking too much, too many sleeping pills. Hmm. I was getting uncomfortable just so I could get five or six hours of hours of sleep. And I said, all right, I got to wean myself off of, of some of these sleeping pills. And and so the trade-off was I was going to bed at, at midnight and I was getting up every day at four. And I've now just convinced I, I'm, that there are people in the world that just only need four and five hours of sleep. And I'm one of them. Um, so I, I said, I'm going to join a golf club. And that way, when I get up at four o'clock in the morning, I can work until it gets light. And then I'll just go watch the city wake up and I'll go play golf. So I joined Mountain Gate, which is up by UCLA, um, basically because I knew a couple of people that were there. And when I joined, I talked James Worthy into joining because him and I used to play golf a lot together. So Worthy and I started playing and, and we started running into people. And that's how I met Richard Schiff. As you know, West Wing is my favorite show. Yep. And one of the guys we were playing with goes, yeah, I play all the time with Schiff. And so I got 
in, in Schiff's group. And then um, my friend Danny, who I met through Ben, Ben Lyons, uh, introduced me to Don Cheadle. And then he introduced me to Sam Jackson. And then he, you know, so I, I found myself, Mace, playing golf on a fairly regular basis with either uh, Richard Schiff, Don Cheadle, or Samuel L. Jackson several times a month. Wow. You know, one of the guys on. And then you just started seeing more people. Like you'd see somebody that you'd recognize. Like one day I'm, I'm in the grill and Schiff calls me over. And uh, he goes, hey, John, I want you to meet a friend of mine. Uh, this is Martin Sheen. Martin, John's a big friend of yours. Wow. And you, you know me. I'm like, you know, I'm like you. You and I, even though like, you're really good friends with, with Brian Cranston, and, but you and I still get starstruck. Sure. You know, we, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, for me, walking up to and sitting at a table and, and sitting down for a few minutes with Martin Sheen and Richard Schiff for somebody who – swears by the west wing is is great and so playing with all those guys and and every once in a while you'll get somebody will just walk up to your group and you i met josh demel a, a couple of months ago who who's friends with all these guys yeah uh, uh you know the other I, I didn't bring this up when you were talking about it, but Lindsay mentioned that joe buck and oliver hudson um are doing a podcast together i think we're gonna have joe on the show um ollie plays at mountain gate with all of our friends you know, he's one of the guys that plays up there. So it's kind of an actor's club. The two actors golf clubs in Los Angeles are Mountain Gate and um, then the one in Burbank Lakeside that's right next to Warner Brothers Studios. That's all the Warner Brothers guys would play golf during the day and then go over there and shoot movies at night. So it's um, it, 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 that's where Timberlake and Ray Romano and all those guys are. So um, I, I never knew it. What started as something that was just a way to get me outside and exercise because I couldn't sleep has turned into this really cool thing where I've got to meet all these famous actors. And, um, and now I get to, you know, see them on a semi regular, you know, a uh, mountain gate, like every golf course has been closed for however many weeks, sure. but, uh, but it, it'll be back up and, and playing soon. So you have told me that you have a friend, uh, that smokes weed 24 seven. Yeah. Would I be able to identify this person as being stoned? No. Really? Complete, completely functional stoner. Wow. And, um, and well, you would you would be able to smell him coming if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, but and this is a a single guy, a little older than us, not much. Lives in a in a palace in Beverly Hills. Throws great parties, and at, at his parties, Mace, he has a pot bar. He has seven. Now you. You could tell me three or four different kinds of pot. I couldn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a pot guy, so I, I don't know. But you would walk up and go, wow, this guy's got everything under the sun. <laughs> and that he lives his life as a functioning star. So much so that I would like, Steve, if I played with this guy and played 18 holes and, you know, he's got his vape going, yep. you know, from hole number one to hole 18, I personally would not be able to drive home. He's like taking meetings and having lunch and walking to his car and driving home. And it, you know, it, he's completely functioning. I would imagine when you get stoned, you, you reach a point every time where it wouldn't be smart for you to get in a car, or do anything you know like that. But this guy, hey, 
I think he's perpetually stoned. Yeah, no, I never, I, 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 I couldn't possibly. I mean, I get so friggin' stupid when I'm stoned. Uh, it's just a joke. Um, uh, yeah, the, one time I've, the one time I've seen you at, in that stage was um, I, I was having, when you lived at, at your old place in Venice Beach, I was having dinner with three women right around the corner from your house like you could you could have from from your front door you could have hit a golf ball and hit the restaurant yep and so i went in and i was i was having dinner with lisa and amanda brown and jamie maggio all who are kind of they were all dressed up and they're all kind of lookers and and uh and it, it seemed weird, this old guy having dinner with three hot girls. And I said, uh, I need a wingman. And, and I called you and I said, hey, are you at home? And you said, yep. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing? You said, I'm signing papers for the new house I'm going to, the one Juan and I just bought around the corner. I go, I, need, I explained the situation to you. And I said... <laughs> I need you to come over here. I look like I, I look like a pimp. I'm sitting here with these three women. Uh, you'll you'll have a good time. And you said, I'll do it. But I'm warning you in advance. I have to keep two things. I have to keep signing these papers. <laughs> and I'm really stoned. And I go, that's even better. And you walked in and you actually understole undersold really stoned. Your eyes were as red as I'd ever seen them. But you were so much fun. You were like they they still they still talk about that that you were like cracking jokes and you were like we were it was one of those Italian Italian restaurants where the tables were really close together and we were like holding court like all the other tables and I'm assuming other people in the restaurant knew that you were stoned but maybe they didn't I mean you weren't slurring words you just had really bloodshot eyes and 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 you were super funny and and and, uh, that's that's when. When I knew that, okay, when you go over the deep end, you go hard. Yeah, well, you know, the the weird thing is I think that uh, that having smoked so much and vaped so much and taken so many edibles over the years, I think it's made me a more creative personality on the air. It, you know, oh, when I'm uh, when I'm doing it, question. I see things in a different way. Um, and I think it's made a lot of difference. Think of, of how many artists and musicians and... You know, like I'm convinced. Have you ever watched the TV show The Good Place? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm convinced that they wrote the people that came up with those concepts and those ideas had to be stoned. Completely. I mean, they had just it's it's just so out there the the, the left turns that show takes, and uh, and so you know without it, I don't know if you come up with half of the bits that we've done over the years. The years, if if you you weren't that. So way. we're talking about weed. Um, what what drugs? What actual drugs have you legitimately tried? I, I don't like smoking anything. I, 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 and I discovered that in college. I, I just, I'm not, the, the smoke bothers me. So I was, inter- was introduced to pot brownies in college. And, uh, and I, I didn't, <laughs> you can imagine, you know how naturally gregarious I am. I mean, I laugh at some pretty stupid stuff. Um, when I was on a pot brownie high, Mace, I could not, stop laughing i mean like I, I would be completely useless to you on the show if i if i <laughs> took edibles before mason in ireland because you would say something dumb i would laugh and that would be the segment i couldn't i wouldn't be able to snap out of it i that's just the the, uh, the some people mellow out some people feel better i just get 
I just think everything's funny, which is why I, I, I pretty much stopped. And then in the 80s, I was in college, I was at UCLA from 81 to 85. Every, if anybody says they didn't try cocaine when they were at UCLA in the early 80s, they're probably lying. Um, I tried it. It scared me when there was a um, you can look th- and look this up, but there was a free safety at UCLA named Don Rogers. And this guy Mace, looked like Adonis. Hmm. He was the he was the there was a long line of free safeties. UCLA, starting with Kenny Easley. Remember Kenny oh, yeah. Easley? Yeah. Who, you know, who was, I think Kenny might even be in the Hall of Fame, but he was like an unbe- unbelievable free safety at UCLA. Then there was Don. Then there was our buddy James Washington came along, and then Carnell Lake. They always had these hard-hitting, prototypical free safeties. And um, Don Rogers used to come to our parties, and he lived up in the, in the athletic dorms where all the football players did. And, it, 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 you know, he had a perfect body. Every all Every girl I knew just uh, had a crush on Don Rogers. He was super smart. He was a great football player. He was a first-round draft pick, I believe, of the Cleveland Browns. Wow. And and uh, you remember, it was very similar to the Len Bias story. He was at a party, did something, and um, it it he ended up dropping dead in his 20s. And that scared me straight. Yeah. I just, that's, that's, that's the last time I, I even thought about, even if I was at a party and in the, it, it, I, I don't know if those, those parties made their way to Ohio. Um, but at UCLA, if you walked into a party in the early eighties, there was cocaine at every party. Well, we had, um, and- when I was a program director, uh, in Toledo, um, the record guys would bring cocaine. And I remember right. really clearly Charlie Miner, who's a legend. You might remember Charlie Miner. He's the one, his uh, stalker girlfriend shot him in his house in Malibu. He was an A&M Records executive. Uh, really famous story. Uh, but he dropped a bag of, uh, of uh, blow on my desk and said, can you play this 38 special record, Second Chance? I'm like, Oh, sure. I'll put second chance on for some blow. <laughs> um, and uh, the record actually went to number one. Uh, he didn't. It, in the end, I would have had to play it, but he really wanted me, me to add that record. And that's how he did it was blow. So in the record business, there was a lot of it and a lot of it seeped into Toledo. I knew uh, after doing it a couple of times, I thought, you know what? This is trouble because I could get really seriously addicted to the buzz I get from Blow. So, well, so I quit Mace, doing it. To let you know how commonplace it was in the 80s at UCLA, I dated a girl who had a vial on her keychain. You know, like, like, so if she threw her keys on the table, you would know that, you know, she had a little vial. So she always had some on her. And I thought, thought I wasn't that into it, but I did try it because all my friends tried it. And the the thing about Rogers was he died of a cocaine overdose. He died of a heart attack caused by a cocaine overdose the night or the day before his wedding. So everybody, like a lot of my friends from UCLA and a lot of guys I knew on the football team were there when it happened. You know, they were all in town for his wedding. And it was just, I think it was 10 days after Len Bias. And so it was like the double whammy. Len Bias dies. And everybody says, oh, my God, if a guy who's, who's built like Len Bias could, could go. 
Um, anybody could go. And then the, the guy who I considered the most invincible Superman at UCLA goes the day before his wedding, mm. but, but a cocaine overdose. And, and to me, I'm like, okay, if those aren't, if those aren't signs, what is? I mean, so I, you, you talk about like you not going to Yale and now looking back on it, realizing that it may have been an omen that those were my omens, Len Bias and Don Rogers going in a 10 day period. And I was scared straight. OK, let me ask you one. You don't have to answer this, um, sure. but I've always wondered, do you make more from ESPN or from the Lakers? ESPN. You do. But it's but it's close. It's close. Um, and the reason, I don't know, if you don't want this to go public, I'm, I'm kind of treating this podcast as if people are taking the time to find the Culture Pop podcast, we should reward them with total honesty. Absolutely. So if you hear me, go, if you hear me going down a road that um, that you don't want public, just cut me off. Oh, I don't care. I'll do anything but, on here. Okay. But one of the reasons why um, – it, 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 I make a little more from ESPN is that you and I, when we started, negotiated these bonus things yep. that get money if we do really well in the ratings. And um, we have done over the years, not always, but over the years, we've done really well in the ratings. And those bonuses have become a really big part of our mutual income, yep. both me and um, we, as part of the coronavirus, were asked to give those up to um, to and, and we both decided that that was the right thing to do, because mainly we don't want to see anybody unnecessarily get laid off. Um, now that that's the case, it's it's basically even. Right. But because you and I have done well in the ratings over the years. Um, I've, I've made a little bit more from ESPN than I have from the Lakers, but I look at that Lakers job as, you know, like a complete privilege. I get to sit in Chick Hearn's chair. So, um, you know, I've never, the longest negotiation I've had with the Lakers over money has been five minutes. You know, it's a, it's, I'm, I'm very thankful they let me do that job. And, um, and I, I consider, um, you know, I, Billy and I both kind of have the same attitude. We are caretakers of that chair until the next guys come along, and that chair has Chick Hearn written on it. So you you try really hard to make sure you take care of the people in their cars, like Chick always did, and you try really hard to. Um, nobody's ever going to be as good as Chick was, so you try really hard to keep the excitement and the energy and the entertainment level that Chick had, and give them some of that. And then hopefully, I always say at least two or three times during a during a season, hey, uh, young people. Type Chick Hearn into a Google search and go down that rabbit hole and, and you can listen to Chick for hours. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much great stuff on there. So um, but the answer to your question is because you and I have have had those um, ratings bonuses over the years. I've made a little more from ESPN. Do you um, I mean, I think you're a great play by play guy. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I listen when I'm in the car. Um, do you ever get people being critical of your play by play? Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, mainly because, you know, the OK, so I'm the fourth generation to come after Chick, but nobody compares me to Paul Sunderland or Joel Myers or Spiro 
all four of us are just compared to Chick. And, and so if you compare to Chick, every, anybody looks bad. But I, I'll say this. I've asked the Lakers. I don't know if they always do it. But I've asked my bosses at the Lakers, if somebody has a, a complaint or if somebody doesn't like me or they point out something that Michael or I said, I, I, I want them to forward it to me. And, and, you know, nowadays it's pretty easy to get a hold of somebody. You can, uh, you know, you can get them on Facebook, you can get them on Twitter, you can get them on email. But sometimes they just don't know how, so they'll write to the Lakers. John Ireland does this, and I really don't like it. And sometimes I'll agree with it, and sometimes I won't. But I'll always get back to them. I'll always say, hey, I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I appreciate you taking the time to write. Um, here's the origin of why I do that, blah, blah, blah. So I, I take it all I, I take it all really seriously. But to answer your question, sure, if you're going to get compared to Chick, you can't live up to it. It's an unreachable standard. So, yeah, th- there, there are going to be people that, that have complaints. Most people, though, are complimentary. It's, yeah. it's been surprising. Um, it's been, you know, this might, if we finish this year, it'll be the end of my ninth year and next year will be my 10th. But um, so that's longer than Paul or Joel or Spiro. So I'll, I'll, I'll be the one who's done it the longest since Chick. Probably the you, longest of all those put together, right? No, um, I think Joel did eight. I think oh, Spiro okay. did six. Um, Paul only got two. Um, but. As, as you know, it's you never know how long it's going to go. Right. It, it there are there are challenges. Uh, you know, uh, you and I have talked a lot about the fact that I do a I do a talk show, and and you know sometimes if the Lakers aren't playing well, and criticism comes off off the of seven ten, even if it's not my yeah. Let's let's crit- actually talk about that. So your relationship with the Lakers is complex. What what can you say about that? That. Um, they just, I was just talking to them about this last week. They, they like me as an announcer. They openly wonder a lot whether it's worth the other stuff. And what I mean by the other stuff is having a guy on a sports talk station that at times is going to talk about things that, that are not what they want to hear. And even if it doesn't come out of my mouth, they say they consider me part of it. Like if you, I'm on Mason and Ireland, if you say something and you have no restrictions, if you say something they don't like, um, they hold me partially responsible for that because I have willingly entered into a partnership on Mason and Ireland. So um, with me over these nine years, it's been a dance and it hasn't always gone well. And uh, I'm trying to continue to do it. There may come a day where I'm not able to do both at the same time. I hope not. Um, but it's something, and you know you know this because we talk about it a lot off the air, it's something I battle with every basketball season. If the conversation turns towards something that isn't positive about the Lakers, they listen. They listen to all of it. And so I, I need to be really careful and hope that 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 isn't the straw that breaks the camel's back. So so far, it hasn't broken, but but you know it could any minute. Um, well, is is there anything that we haven't gotten to? I'm trying to think. Um, I I I don't think so. How people ask me a lot. How long do you think Mason and Ireland goes? Yeah. Do we go? I always think. I always treat it like we're in whatever contract we're in is our last contract. But what's helped us over the years is 
the if, if you picture us riding a wave. Yep. The wave has the wave has changed shape so many times. In the early years, it was we it would physically be where we were. Like when we started, you were in L.A. at a studio in Hot Dog on a Stick, and <laughs> I was in San Diego, and then we moved, and we went to the CNN building on Sunset, which was fun, and then we were in Burbank, and then we were next to Arby's on La Cienega, and now um, we're over at L.A. Live, and now we're in our houses and so every time they reset the location, I think it kind of gives you and I a natural reset. Yeah, we're um, in the we're in the first year of a new three year contract, so we know at least we're going to two thousand twenty two. Right, and and do you think we go beyond that? Honestly, I think we do. I don't know. Now that I doesn't mean I, that doesn't mean I won't say I always say this is our last contract, but right. I I have but, a I have a suspicion that we're going to go past 2022. This one you have said off the air on multiple occasions. You're convinced is our last one. <laughs> um, but you, uh, what's what's fun about you is you you um, you talk about your bipolar, but where it where it presents itself is I try like you came up with a great analogy once that. Um, if we were playing golf, I would tend to be in the fairway where you would be way out to the right, way out to the left. And eventually we may get to the same place, but we might end up on the green together. Yep. But you you would you would have taken the extreme road or I would have taken the more traditional one. Yeah. Um, like like the, the joke we told on the air the other day was funny when they gave us Lindsay. Your first Im- impressions of Lindsay were, um, wow, I don't know if she gets it. I don't know um, if this is going to work. Oh, let's be honest. I said she was going to be terrible. I thought they were literally trying to torpedo our show. Right. By the time it, it, it exhibited itself in a text to me, it was the station is trying to screw us. (laughs) (laughs) I think I said, well, why would they do that? And you go, well, I just think they are. And I go, well, let's give it a couple of days. And I uh, gave it a couple days, and you went, "Yeah, I overreacted." She seems like she might be okay. And then after a week, it was, "No, no, I like her." And then after two weeks, it was, "Okay, now I really like her." Yeah. So, but I don't necessarily think that that. I mean, well, I even like this the, this last week, we did a couple of shows, and afterwards, I said, "Boy, I suck today. I, I was just yeah, terrible were, today." Yeah, you were wrong this week. Yeah. Uh, but you did. You did. You're hard on yourself, but. But this week you were legitimately wrong. These shows from home have been surprisingly good. Yeah, they have um, been. They have been. It's been a really weird experience to do them from show from home. Um, there's something. Um, it's opened the door a little bit for us to do some different stuff. I got a text from Dave Singer uh, saying, um, "Hey, it's kind of like the show you always wanted to do." Uh, which is just kind of like free form. This is one of the things I learned from people always thought uh, Max Kellerman and I didn't get along and we sort of played like we didn't get along, right? That was the bit. Um, but I, I learned a lot from Max, one of the most influential broadcasters, I think, uh, hopefully he doesn't hear this, that I ever worked with. Um, <laughs> but he treated radio like 
jazz. Like he would put stuff out there without really knowing where it was going to go. And it was kind of unplanned and it was a little bit dangerous. And I think I picked up a lot of that from working with Max. And I think that's what the show has had in this last, can can you believe we've been doing the show four and a half weeks from our houses? Four and a oh half my weeks. God. It's it's crazy. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, that is. <laughs> and you know, but it, it's the new world. Like we were talking about how uh, you things that you you would have said three months ago, like you would never even consider doing. Now you would think, oh, yeah, I would. You yeah. know, that I, I would watch basketball in a bubble with no fans. Yeah, you know, it, it got you got to consider that stuff. Hey, we made and, a bet. We made a bet on a horse game. Right, right. It, 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 uh, we made an hour long bit out of a Jason Alexander video <laughs> that you I think put put on the air because you genuinely thought, oh, this is this is this is sweet. I it's, genuinely it's liked it. Yeah, I genuinely and, did. And, and, and you probably thought, oh, this is this is a piece of sound that we can play and we can both compliment Jason Alexander <laughs> and it can be three minutes. Instead, I totally zagged when you thought I was going to zig, and we got like an hour out of it, and you're like, I can't believe you hate this. You don't throw, that's that was the jazz element of it. You don't throw that out there, and I don't go completely the different way you thought I was going to go. Uh, and then we don't get, and you know, th- th- that's like we're, what we're doing with Sliwa. Sliwa is, you know, for, and people probably figured this out, a genuine straight arrow. Oh, he is I mean, he, he is the ultimate straight man. He's a he's a nice guy who's been thrown into a weird situation and he's gotta fill three hours at night. And we are asking him questions about hookers and asking him <laughs> <laughs> Making him look making him look stupid on games. Uh um, embarrassing him at every turn. And the fact that he's been willing to go with it, yep. I think has been Good for him. We know Chris Morales tells me that that's his favorite. He says that half hour is the best half hour of the station all day long. He looks forward to it every day. Yeah, because uh, and and that that is is basically the the kind of the the unwritten theme of the Mason and Ireland show is we will go down any rabbit hole, even the ones you guys think we're not going to go. Well, down. And you know what I'm kind of fascinated by is I. You know, we 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 keep talking about uh, you know America 2.0. I wonder once sports starts again, and it's going to happen. I wonder what kind of influence this period is going to have on what we wind up doing. Are we going to be even more loose than we've ever been before, even while there are games taking place? I think this is there's going to be a long lasting impact on the show from the shows that we're doing right now. Hope so. I mean, they're they're more comfortable. I mean, when you're basically doing shows in your pajamas, you tend to let your guard down. Um, but the on the other hand, though, I I uh, I'm anxious to get. I, I want human contact back. Yeah, I want to be back. I want to be back in in restaurants and and arenas and and the, the hardest thing about this is it's it's all going to get back to normal one day. The hardest part is not knowing when. Yep. You know, if it's going to be a month, is it going to be a year? We don't know. Jack, my son, every day says, Dad, how long is this going to last? I go, you know, my answer isn't any different than it was yesterday. Nobody knows. Yeah, yeah. 
but you know we're making we're, we're doing a good job of making the best of it yep we are well listen i appreciate you doing this i think it's been a if if you're a fan of mason and ireland and if you're a fan of john ireland uh this is a really oh God, complete story of your life minutes. what's that yeah we're talking for an hour and 20 minutes yeah yeah how about that Wow. Didn't think that. Okay. All right. So I may, I will, uh, well, people will hear you and I together on Monday and tonight, I think I'm figured out a way to get you into my online poker game. So I may, uh, I may see and talk to you on zoom tonight. And if not, I will, uh, I will talk to you Monday at two fifty-five. Okay, cool, man. Hey, thanks for doing this, John. All right. Have a great day. Yep. You too. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next week for an all new episode of culture pop.